At first, Los Angeles police thought that the murder of a young woman last March was an isolated act of violence. But since then, they've come to believe it was connected to a wide-ranging series of assaults by a killer who's become known as the Night Stalker, a killer who apparently struck again during the weekend. a period of 14 months, Richard Ramirez, aka the Night Stalker, killed 13 people and attempted to kill five more across California in a span of one year between 1984 and 1985. Richard Ramirez kept LA on edge with his murderous rampages. Today, he is known as one of the most notorious serial killers in history. On today's episode, we talk about Richard's childhood, dark journey into a life of crime and Satanism. We also talk about his trials and the women who fought, loved, and admired Death Row Romeo. The paranormal aftermath. We sit down with author Mario Becerra of Haunted East Los Angeles as he shares a tale about a family whom experienced a dark and negative entity after their son locked eyes with Ramirez during his arrest. What led Richard Ramirez to commit these violent crimes? Was it nature or nurture? Or was it something unearthly? What negative force did Richard Ramirez leave behind with the family on Hubbard Street? And is his spirit felt and seen at the Cecil? This is the true crime and paranormal aftermath of Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Hollyweird Paranormal travels back in time in season three. So tag along with us as we time warp through one of the most deadliest decades. It was the decade that changed Los Angeles. The 80s. excuse the volume on our interview with author Mario Becerra. We are paranerds and true crime enthusiasts, not sound engineers, and we do our very best to improve the sound quality of our FaceTime interviews. Headphones are highly recommended for that portion. Also, the following episode contains violent and graphic content. Listener discretion advised. Now let's get Holly weird. All right, and we're rolling. <laughs> Damn, Daniel, it's 2019, and we're back at it with Hollywood Paranormal Podcast. Yes. Happy 2019, guys, even though it's like right now January 20th. Well, technically, it's January the 13th since we're recording. You thought you could leave us in 2018, but here we are. Here we are. God, you guys you guys got a, a little aggressive I know. I in our messages it. because I received a couple messages, like some sweet ones. There were some sweet ones in the beginning, like, so guys, I binge listened to your episodes and... Um, how, how, long, how long are you guys uh, out? You know? And then I got other ones that were like, damn, bitches. 
I mean, hurry the fuck up. I need I need more episodes. Well, um, look here, crack addicts. <laughs> we're lazy. No, I mean busy. <laughs> both. We're both. Like we're both hard working girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you go. No, we actually need breaks, guys. Mm-hmm. We are. I love it. I love the fervor. <laughs> We needed a break, and also I was traveling out of the country, yeah. and I was away for two weeks in Honduras, and and I was here, and you were see <laughs> both both delicious places to be. Yes. Like I love L.A. During I do get it though because it's hard yeah. when you're on break mm-hmm. and all your shows, all your podcasts, mm-hmm. all your movies, they're on hiatus because that's just what the entertainment industry yeah. does. Like, yes. LA is like a little ghost town. It is. There's nobody here. There's nothing being produced. Mm-hmm. So I really do get it because I'm in the same boat where I'm like, I'm bored. Why are none of my shows making new episodes? It's like, well, well, actually, there's there's no one here. We're, yeah, that's what's that's what's happening. Yeah. Sorry, friends. Sorry. I know a lot of my friends are still on vacation. Yeah. Like, we're not going to get work until late February. Mm-hmm. You know, so there you have it. I know. But mm-hmm. we're back. But we're back. We're back. We needed a break from our break. So and we needed time to research mm-hmm. this massive episode so we have a very interesting episode to start off our season three guys i mean talk about heavy hitters like this is a big one yeah i thought the wonderland murders was pretty heavy this is like the heaviest and it was just one person and and as opposed to a gang well and i think and we're obviously gonna talk about this but i think this one in particular was really era and culture defining oh yes i'm gonna talk about all this but like it it just happened you you know whether it's fate or history Mm -hmm. or whatever you want to god anything whatever name you want to give it richard ramirez was born into the time that was ready for him like yes america southern california in particular right was ripe for him to exploit exactly and create this cultural shift and in a way it is a loss of innocence and he is a major player in that we'll definitely go into that because we have so much for you guys on this big episode it's gonna be a juicy episode we are going to take a walk down memory lane by taking a trip throughout my favorite decade the 80s love, 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 if you've love, been love. following us on our social meds we'll be we were like putting out little teasers <laughs> complemented by you know some synth wave music some, yes. some you know just salt bay sprinkles some human league onto mm-hmm. you know our posts so the reason why we're going to dive into the 80s and definitely take you throughout the tour of the 80s in los angeles is because according to the los angeles times the 80s was the decade that changed Los Angeles. Yeah. And it was considered to be one of the most deadliest decades. Yeah. I mean, I'm also going to do massive amounts of cocaine before every episode just to keep like with the no, theme. No, it's not cocaine. Uh, it, it, it was crack, crack or swack. Oh. You're so old school. I'm so We'll hair. go into that soon. Look how thin and chic I am. No, I don't <laughs> like the wolf. Don't Hello. do ki- Don't do drugs, kids. Don't. I almost said don't do kids drugs. <laughs> Honestly, both apply. <laughs> Don't do kids. Just say no, Bryce. Just say no to Bryce. Sorry, moms. <laughs> All right, guys. So are you ready for this? Yes. 
So we're going to take a trip to the 80s, guys. Then we're going to go and dive into the biggest ocean and swim with this nasty, big-ass fish, mm. Richard Ramirez, mm. the night stalker. We're going to go into his childhood, his yep. upbringing, because yep. that's very important, and go into his life of crimes and the circus that was his trials and the people that flocked to pine for his attention. Gross. We are going to talk about Death Row Romeo because mm. towards the end, the Night Stalker was given a different name, Death Row Romeo, because he had a slew of female admirers and will go on a huge. I was say, in case anyone thought New Year, New Us applied to our perchant feminist <laughs> rant i will be going on a feminist rant the likes of which you have never seen exactly happy 2019 it's fine it's fine so guys grab your fanny pack Yeet. slip into your favorite jellies or your la gears and grab a nice refreshing can of tab dead, dead. yeah Amazing. check that expiration date because lord knows how old that tab is Grr. i like my tab without the can so thank, thank you y'all. i know all right guys so here here it is, 80s, Los Angeles. There was a lot going on, good and bad. Rodeo Drive was the place to be seen. Wolfgang Puck's salmon pizza was a hit in the culinary world. The music scene was blowing up with hits from the Go-Go's and the Bangles. And a new form of metal rock was hitting the scene, which is hair metal band music. We had groups such as Motley Crue and a Baby Guns N' Roses selling out shows at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go. The entertainment industry was booming with big hits such as Rambo, Rocky, The Breakfast Club, and Back to the Future. Yes, The Breakfast Club. But there was also crime, a lot of crack, and dirty grit right alongside the neon hues of the Sunset Strip and Hollywood Boulevard. The AIDS epidemic was running rampant. Mm. And then we had all this cocaine and crack circulating out of lower class neighborhoods. So cocaine was already a thing of the past, but still making its circulation and way around the nightclubs. And yeah, this new form of crack cocaine making its way throughout this market. I don't know why this is, but I will always associate cocaine with Los Angeles. It is just like... <laughs> If every city, like every state has a flower and a bird, like every city has a drug. Has and a drug. And it's cocaine. Um, like Florida has bath salts. A hundred percent. Yeah. Detroit has like crack. Like I just think there's certain places that you just associate. <laughs> I know it's like really <laughs> fucked up, but LA and cocaine just go hand in hand in my mind. And it's still true. I still see people do coke all the time I'm oh, like yeah. where am I what decade is it oh right I'm back you in LA you don't even see it you just hear it you're it's like in so the bathroom insane. you hear yep mm-hmm. every yeah. every Picking time up my stuff and going. doesn't matter where you're like oh this is happening here at this little like mom and pops pizza shop girl, girl it is it is you don't even want to know what's going on in the background no you do not mm-hmm. crime was at its all time high at the time we were considered the homicide capital of the world <laughs> Or the United States, at least. According to Mike Stalkup, a retired detective who worked in the LAPD Robbery Homicide Division, he said this in an episode of Vanity Fair Confidential called Murder on the Sunset Strip. Mm. I believe we had close to 1,200 homicides within the city of Los Angeles. We were running hard at the time, fast and furious, Stall Cup continued, which is true. I mean, it was a very deadly decade. Yeah. Hollywood was a place you definitely didn't want to set foot in past 530 in the evening. You had the 38th Street Gang running every corner from Vine to Ivar to La Brea. Now... 
Every it's so time, true. <laughs> I mean, you have like the juice gangs. Like you, mm-hmm. if you hit those corners, you can grab a nice detox juice, mm-hmm. a cool brew, and if you're lucky, some good Kush. You know? Yeah, I mean, there definitely is a lot of gentrification that's happened, but oh. there's still a little scent of like, mm, there am is. I safe right now? No, you're not. You're, you're not. You're not. Um, you mostly are, but you're no, not. No, there there are some, the crime has gone up significantly yeah, within the past couple of years. Last year, two students were robbed at gunpoint. For some of you guys that are just tuning in, we, well, Bryce used to work at the same place I, I did. To, yes. But it's an acting school, which is in the heart of Hollywood. And we have these reports that are delivered mm-hmm. to the director of student services. And he tells them, hey, stay away from these areas past these times. Yep. Well, there's this couple that they were walking home from dinner off Aww. of La Brea and Orange. The guy was walking his girlfriend to her apartment. And out of the blue, this dude came out of nowhere with a gun and held them up at gunpoint yeah. at 9 30 yeah and they were like there were people around and this dude just out of nowhere jumped out with a gun we just gave him everything that we had and he just disappeared it's so scary it is, it is really scary like it's still i mean it's still dangerous but people forget to like always hold their guard yeah. down, you know never leave your guard down when you're walking around there i was uh, when i was working there there would always be like the new wave of students and they would come in from like their little buses from the midwest just like i did just like i did so like Mm -hmm. i'm not yeah i'm not exempt from this but you Mm -hmm. just are like walking around and you're so glamored by like finally like getting out of your little town and being in the big city and you're finally like pursuing your dreams and i just see them pie in the sky walking down the sidewalks i'm like oh god the target on your back could not be bigger like you have got (laughs) to pay attention it's true it's true that's so sad i'm like obviously i would never try and like victim shame those like it's so sad that that happened to them but like oh they're poor sweet little hearts yeah but i mean you have to be very conscious of your surroundings in that place it's it's not it it will never be safe no it will never be safe in my opinion it won't well guys this was considered one of the most deadliest decades because we had a slew of serial killers not only in the city of los angeles but also in the state of california i'm just going to go through a list of these peeps all right we first off have leonard lake and charles ing who built a torture cabin here in california complete with a false wall to imprison their captives when they were caught get this when they were caught they found 40 pounds of charred human remains they had killed up to 22 people Mm. out of the 22 were two families and two infants then we have very then we had the famous one golden state killer Mm -hmm. aka the original night stalker yeah yes yes girl at one point, the Golden State Killer was labeled the original Night Stalker until he was finally given Ear, the East Area Rapist. Like, you know, I think they just like to shop around the name until like one of them sticks. It just doesn't stick. And, like, no. let's just like keep searching. Mm-hmm. Like, no. Ear, just really? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it'll stick. It'll stick. Well, the East Area Rapist comes in with 12 murders and 45 rapes in California from the 70s Mm. to the 80s, stopping his rampage in 1986. Then we have Randy Stephen Kraft, the scorecard killer or the freeway killer, who killed 16 young men between 72 and Mm. 83. John Floyd Thomas Jr., convicted of murdering seven women in L.A. between the 70s and the 80s. William Suff. Suff raped and killed at least 12 prostitutes in Riverside County Hmm. between 74 and 92. William Bonin, 
between 1979 and 1981, Bonin murdered up to 21 boys and young men in Southern California. He was finally convicted in 96. Oh, my God. Philip Carl Jablonski, murdering five women between 1971-91 in California and Utah. Grim sleeper Lonnie David Franklin Jr. was the grim sleeper who had led a series of killings in Los Angeles between 1985 and 2007 because of a 14-year sleeper period. That is why he was given mm-hmm. the nickname Grim Sleeper. Michael Hughes, convicted of killing seven females in California, mainly in Culver City between the 80s and early 90s. And then finally, Chester Turner, convicted of 11 to 15 murders in Los Angeles between the course of the 1980s and the 1990s. And then finally, we have the biggest fish of them all, Richard Ramirez. That also fell. Yes, coming in with 13 victims. Mm. And possibly more. They believe he may have yes. had committed more murders, but they don't know. They will never know. So, yeah, the 80s was definitely considered to be one of the most dangerous decades. But I'm sure you guys are thinking, well, what about the 60s with the Charles Manson murders and the 70s with the, you know, Wonderland murders? Well, here's the things. You see, in the 60s is when things really started to surface. We as a country yes. changed, yes. you know, our... We lost our innocence in the mm-hmm. 60s. In the 70s, it progressed with drugs. And in the 80s, it peaked. Violence, serial killers peaked in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, entering this infancy stage and kind of stagnant in the infancy stages of investigation, of, you know, collecting data and DNA. Totally. So... Of course, we were moving at a glacial pace because, you know, we had the FBI and their division trying to figure out, like, the mindset of a serial killer. How mm-hmm. how do they think? How do they tick? And, of course, you know, for some reason in the 80s, we didn't learn what was going on in the 60s and 70s. And we were still sleeping with our windows and doors unlocked. Mm-hmm. We'll go into that very shortly. Oh my God. As, like, a child of the 90s, like, there are things that my parents had us, like, let us do mm-hmm. that are, like... That would be, like, borderline child abuse now. Like, not really. Like, I had a very idyllic childhood, but we, like, lived in the country. And so, like, we just kind of, like, roamed free. Like, one time my sister and I just decided that we were going to, like, walk along this one tree line behind the cornfield on our house. And we ended up walking, like, 10 miles through, like, corn and, like, woods in Ohio just to, like, see where the path led. And we, like, found this cool little river and, like... Can you imagine just not knowing where your children were for like a 10 mile hike through the cornfield? Like we were gone all day and like kind of came back like a little late for dinner. And my parents were like, where have you guys been? Walking. Yeah. And they were like, oh, like tell us about it. (laughs) I would call the FBI. I'd be like, my children are gone. (laughs) That would have been my mom. They have been abducted. Like I would lose... My dog, like, goes around the corner in our fenced-in backyard. I'm Uh like, I can't see him. Where is he? Like, (laughs) no care. They were just like, oh, I'm sure they're fine. No, we we would never do that. My my sisters and I would never do that. Look, we grew up with a strict Spanish mom, so we fear two. We fear two things. The chancla chancla. and la faja. All right? What's la faja? Oh, the belt. (laughs) Dead. Oh, my God. Yes. Girl. It's like, you had one. If we were in trouble, like, you had one option. You, what you want 
la faja or the chancla. My, like, my dad could rip his belt off and fold it in half and spank you in one motion. It was I know. terrifying. Oh, I think my mom did that once. Yeah, it's amazing. Like <laughs> You always like think of your parents. Like People are going to call and be like, are y'all okay? Like, Do you need help? Millennials uh, listening to this fine. are like, what? Yeah. No. <laughs> that's child abuse. No, that's how yeah. you were raised. Let me tell you something about the South. Like, I don't know, girl. Um, but like, you would always like, I kind of always thought like, especially my mom, I was like, they're not like stronger or faster than me, like mm-hmm. eight-year-old me. And then they would do these things that were like Olympian feats of athleticism to punish you. I remember one time my mom like hurled my entire entire bed and I was like damn <laughs> she just like cleared the world record like no shits given she like one leap cleared my whole bed and I was like damn I'm dead I'm dead <laughs> do not fight your parents it's I mean, not you your won't parents win do have secret powers they there do. you go the they biggest do. question is Bryce when you were when you went on this 10 mile hike mm-hmm. walk were you in chanclas or were you in sneakers? <laughs> that, is, that is the biggest question. Were you shuffling in your flip-flops? Um, no, I was in these like really ugly boots that were like <laughs> You? Standard. Boots? I know. They were, well, they were like, they were like, what is that brand? The kind of like Sperry's, but like the ugly version of them where they have like the rubber on the bottom uh-huh. and like the rubber section with like canvas. I don't know. I can picture them so clearly in my mind. I'll have to look it up. But I mean, we had La Faja and La Chancla, but I had style at least. Oh. <laughs> I had matching windbreaker suits. Oh, so did I. That was it. It was great. All right, guys. So we're going to enter the early childhood of Richard Ramirez. Mm-hmm. He was born Ricardo Leva Munoz Ramirez in El Paso, Texas in 1960. He was the youngest of five children born to Mexican immigrant parents before immigrating. His father has been was a policeman in Juarez just across the border from El Paso and now one of the most dangerous places on earth. Mm-hmm. And then snatched a job working on the Santa Fe Railroad. His mother worked at a boot factory where she was exposed to chemical fumes when she was pregnant with him, and all his siblings, including Richard, suffered from birth defects, ranging from respiratory difficulty to delayed education to even bone deformities. At age two, a dresser fell on little Richie's head, causing a large forehead laceration. At the age of five, he was knocked unconscious from a swing and started experiencing epileptic seizures up to his teens so already like (laughs) that that head trauma though that head trauma but where the fuck was his mom (laughs) well with five kids like i I just feel like you're on your own good luck obviously especially at this time like the 60s like you got to make it work. Like, if you survive, good. Mm-hmm. If not, eh, we got four more. Like, mm-mm. Exactly. So, Richard's mom, in an interview, mentioned him as being a very happy child. Always mm. laughing, normal, quiet at times, but very sweet. Even his classmates recalled him, you know, being a very active kid. He was a fast runner. And yes, they also brought up, you know, his epileptic seizures. Mm. His epileptic seizures, sorry. And... Within time, his father started drinking and started beating his family. Mm -hmm. So this was another, you know, situation that Richard was also placed in is he witnessed his father being beating his mom, beating Mm. up his siblings, and he also endured that violence as well. There was also a rumor that Richard may have been sexually molested to at, um, I think it was at a school. So apparently, according to one report, um, Richard and one of his, I think it was one of his middle brothers, were sexually assaulted by an instructor, a Mm. special education instructor in one of these institutions. 
and Richard Ramirez in one interview mentioned that that never happened to him. Yeah, it happened to my brother, but it didn't happen to me. But Mm. a lot of psychologists state that it may have most likely happened. So that could have been another turning point in his life as well. Another crack Mm -hmm. in the foundation. And then as he's growing up, you know, he has another amazing big brother this parental figure you you know who i'm going to talk about the cousin who taught him how to kill could my eyes be rolling any further in my head like oh what a nightmare all right guys so ramirez's older cousin mike was a u.s army green beret in vietnam who returned from that nihilistic bloodbath to proudly regale young richie with stories of raping and murdering Viet Cong women mike even showed richie the polaroids he had taken of his victims including one shot where he hoisted the decapitated head of a woman he raped Apparently, Richard didn't realize this was probably something that should have been reported to the police and said he was fascinated and enraptured mm. by Mike's stories and thought it was really cool. Right. Like cool older cousin Mike, like is telling you that this is like what this he is did good. and you yeah. want to be like, I want to be like Mike. Mm-hmm. And this is something that not only Mike did, but I mean, it was documented that there were some U.S. soldiers that went crazy during Vietnam mm-hmm. and they did commit these acts. They would go to these villages of you know, these Viet Cong villages and just Mm -hmm. massacre them. And yeah, not a great, another not great time in our history. Not a great time, but the Viet Cong were also doing that to our soldiers as well. It was just such a, the whole thing, just what a cluster. They, you know, there were some soldiers that just went AWOL and Mike was one of them pretty much. That just breaks my heart. As an eerie foreshadowing of Richard's later nocturnal murderous forays, Mike would take him out to the desert and train him how to kill animals with knives and guns. Mike, who was unemployed and married, would often sit around all day with Richie smoking weed and sharing tales of his violent rape sprees in Nam. Then on May 4th, 1973, his wife Jessie confronted him about being a lazy pothead <laughs> who needed to get a job. Richard watched. Mike pulled out a 38 revolver and shot his wife dead in the face, splattering Ramirez with blood. Mike received a reduced sentence because it was determined he had PTSD from Nam. Mm. Richard retreated into his own head, smoking weed and visiting cemeteries and studying Satanism. So already this to me was this to me was the pivotal point. Mm -hmm. This is where I feel this was. This was his turning point as a serial killer mm-hmm. because. Well, he checks sort of all the boxes. Like it, it did. If you want to like figure out, like we have the advantage of history on our side, but like mm-hmm. if you want to make a profile of a serial killer, look at this case because he checks like early childhood trauma. Yes. Early childhood head trauma. Exactly. Early history of abuse. Like all it, of these things exactly cruelty towards animals like minor thefts escalations like all these things mm-hmm. tick 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 he checks all the boxes but here's the thing that people really didn't understand too is that he was 13 Ugh. and he was going through puberty mm-hmm. and this is the most delicate time in a child's life right so he is you know going through hormonal changes he's having thoughts of sex Mm -hmm. he has all these questions and here's you know big brother mikey Mm -hmm. coming in and telling him you know and showing him you know oh this is what sex looks like and this is what murder looks like and Mm -hmm. this is what carnage looks like so here we're developing like violence and bloodlust at the same time this to me was the turning point for him this really fucked him Mm -hmm. up so 
after this whole fiasco with Mikey, Richard is then sent to live with his sister and brother-in-law. He lives with his sister and brother-in-law, who um, is also not a good figure Mm -mm. for him because the brother-in-law is a peeping Tom. So during his peeping Tom sprees, he would take Richard with him and show him you know, his peeping Tom ways. He would show him where to stand, where to go. What the hell? How to, you know, how to like spy on these individuals. And Richie just pretty much followed his lead. Like, could you imagine if he had just like one good influence in his life? Like, goddamn. <laughs> like, hey, friend, like, let's go peeping Tom. Like, I'm sorry, what? What? Did you mean play racquetball? No? Okay. <laughs> nope. <laughs> So to to Richard, this was exciting mm-hmm. because he was able to see these people, but they were not able to see him. Mm-hmm. Now he has dropped out of school. He dropped out of school in the ninth grade. Ramirez was soon later arrested for the first time in 1977 for marijuana p- possession. He soon moved to California, progressing to cocaine addiction, burglary, and cultivating an interest in Satanism. He was also um, working at a Holiday Inn, and he was, I guess, in charge of, like, monitoring all the rooms. Sure. What can go wrong there? (laughs) There is this one couple and it's a husband and wife they're coming into the hotel for a couple of nights so richard is enamored with the wife begins to spy on her stalk her peep on her one evening the husband is moving the car and the wife decides to take a shower and richard decides okay i'm going to break into the room richard has the master key to all the rooms so he breaks into this woman's room as she's showering he pretty much opens the curtain grabs her and starts to Well, he tries to rape her. Mm -hmm. Mid-rape, the husband comes back and is able to grab Richard and beat the crap out of him and was able to call the cops. So he was then later on arrested for attempted rape. Now they dropped the charges since they were out of state and they didn't want to go through with any of the proceedings. Mistake. Big mistake. (laughs) Go through with the proceedings. So they, I mean, that really shocked me. They wanted to drop everything. It's like, They probably just wanted to forget. That's what it was. Which is really sad. Yeah. But like, oof. He travels to San Francisco. He hangs out with followers of Anton LaVey. Mm. So already he's taking notes down and, you know, collecting these many wonderful learning curves of Satanism. Mm -hmm. And there was even rumors that some of the people that he was hanging around with did some rituals. So right there, he is picking up and practicing Satanism. And then later, he's arrested for the third time in Los Angeles for auto theft and in 1981. And again in 1984, and noticeably began to neglect his personal hygiene. So at this point, people are saying that around 1984 is when he was staying in the Cecil Hotel Mm -hmm. because this is where he was able to get his drugs and his kicks off a skid row. So he would leave the building, go buy his drugs, bring prostitutes back to his room. Mm -hmm. They would do heroin together, screw, and then he would go out and commit theft. And then in walks his stages of becoming the Night Stalker. Mm -hmm. So you have... (laughs) yes info on that because this is where shit literally hits the fan in 1984 so just like a tiny little disclaimer we kind of (laughs) talked about this um this is like a really difficult 
case. Like, yes. It, they're... For whatever reason, I find this one, like, incredibly unsettling. Like, some of the other ones we've talked about leading up to this are also violent, but it's sort of like a distance that I can keep. This one I find particularly, like, jarring. It, like, turns my stomach. Like, the descriptions of, like, what he did and, like, committed... Yeah. I find incredibly unsettling. So, that being said, I am going to talk about it. <laughs> but, like, if you really want to Google, like, the gory details, you are, like, free to do that. I'm probably going to, like, PG them. Do you know what I mean? Because some of the things I he does... I put a couple of inserts. Definitely. Please because, do. I mean, what we're going to talk about towards the end during his trials is just the most shocking thing mm-hmm. about this case. I mean, yes, the murders that he committed were extremely heinous and violent and mm-hmm. completely shocking, but the people that like made up excuses for him towards the end mm-hmm. were even, it was the most shocking to yeah. me. And we'll go into that soon. Yeah. So like, I'm just not going to sit here and like read to you like, and then like this thing he did, because it's like no, really, it's, too- it's like pretty stomach turning. Yeah. I don't know. Like even as I was reading it, I was just like, yeah, I, I can't say this word out loud. <laughs> um, I'm just such a delicate flower, as we all know. So that being said, um, it's all on Wikipedia. So if you really need to know like what he did more than like what I'm saying, it's there. Mm-hmm. I'm just probably going to like, not everything. There's just like two in particular that I'm like, I can't talk about that. <laughs> and this is one of them. Um, so on April 10th in 1984, uh, Ramirez murdered nine-year-old May Leung or Leung. I'm mm-hmm. not 100% sure how to say that. Sorry. Um, so this actually is his first known and credited killing, but it wasn't discovered until much later. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in 2009. So that's almost 30 years later uh, that he his DNA was matched to a sample obtained at the crime scene. And actually in 2016, I don't know if we all knew this or not. Um, there was another DNA sample of like a probable witness to her murder. No, but they've never pressed charges because it's literally the only piece of evidence. There's no other evidence to support that. It's just most likely that there was someone else present Mm -hmm. if not participating then witnessing her like murder right um and so he uh attacks her and murders her and leaves her there in the hotel and so and they didn't you know that's not one that's like associated with i guess the night stalker attacks Mm -hmm. because it's a bit further it's like a bit earlier in the timeline but also it wasn't discovered or like connected right. until much later. That's so, why they believed that he had committed more. Yes. And that's the thing is like this is just the first one that they officially yeah. absolutely can connect him to. Like you said, 30 years later. Jeez. It's insane. I know. So that again, like you were saying, this is an escalation. So then his first official quote night stalker crime, if you will, on um, June 28th, 1984, uh, 79-year-old Jenny Vincow was murdered in her apartment. She had been stabbed, and she was nearly decapitated, unfortunately. Oh. Um, and this is not only the first murder, but his fingerprint is found on the screen to her home, like the window screen. Yeah. So they actually get evidence um, from the first one, mm-hmm. which I find really sad, because like, oh, he's there. He- they have opened a window i know 
she had left a window unlocked. Mm-hmm. Once again, this and this is- was like his calling card was like exploiting people's benign trust. Like exactly, this window's not locked. I'm gonna go in. I'm gonna go in. Mm-hmm. So the next one on March 17th, 1985. So the next year, Ramirez attacks 22 year old Maria Hernandez outside of her home, shooting her in the face, and then pulling her into her own garage. She survives the initial shot. Because she shielded her face and the bullet allegedly ricochets off the keys in her hands. Like, someone's looking out for her. Oh, I know. So she survives. Um, and her roommate hears the shot. Dale Okazaki, sorry, 34, hears the gunshot, ducks and tries to hide. And it's when he is rummaging through the house, she, like, peeks up and he shoots her as well. Unfortunately, she died. Um, (laughs) So then, within an hour of the home invasion, Ramiro, or sorry, Ramirez pulls 30-year-old Cy Leon, quote, Veronica, out of her car in Monterey Park. Which is very close. Mm-hmm. Um, he also shoots her and then flees the scene. She is pronounced dead upon arrival, and it's the fact that there are three, two confirmed and one attempted murder within a single day that starts the coverage of what ha- is happening mm-hmm. because it's so violent and so quick that the news media starts covering it immediately. They do have a description of him, right? And they. Um, basically have a description of a bulging-eyed, rotted-toothed attacker that they dub the walk-in killer or the valley intruder. Which, like, tiny little side note, maybe stop naming the murderers. It makes them seem like, like, supervillains. It's just like, they're like celebrities. Yeah, stop doing that. We still do it. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. I, like, try to not know their names if I can. I mean, I, now they would have an Instagram and 100%. Then, you know, a Facebook following. Hashtag Jesus. the Night Stalker. I like, know. you know that shit would happen. Probably will happen oh, there, at some there's, point. No, there's websites dedicated to and it. And it's so heartbreaking. Like, mm-hmm. I always like to get, like, super political so early in the episode, but here we are. Mm-hmm. Um. Um, I just think we do a really bad job, especially with like mass shootings and like any kind of serial killing. And like, it's this weird, like morbid glorification of the perpetrator Mm -hmm. and the victims kind of get lost. Like, honestly, like I can't name a list of victims like most of the time. Do you know what I mean? But like you start saying these names of like these quote famous killers Mm -hmm. and we all know them. And it's like, oh, it makes me not super comfortable and i think this is the part of it is that the media latches on it sells a good story it does they dub them this like really catchy name Mm -hmm. and then it's like they're stuck in infamy hate it anyway (laughs) off my little soapbox thank you (laughs) um so then fast forward on march 27th 1985 ramirez enters a home that he had burglarized a year prior so now we're in whittier and he Kills the sleeping Vincent Zazara, age 64. That's the other thing. The age range on these people is insane to me. Carrying on, he shoots him and his wife is awakened by her husband's murder. 
uh, she does try and defend her home. Of course. Um, which actually, I think, this is just purely my opinion, but I think her resistance, like, low-key enrages him further. Yeah, she was a tough cookie. She was, bless her. And so he attacks her very violently. And this is the other one that I will not be going into detail because it is super violent and super graphic. Um, he essentially just mutilates her. Uh, she tries to get a gun from under their bed and mm-hmm. that triggers him. He, he shoots her crazy. and he gets a knife from their kitchen and mutilates her. Um, and actually in the autopsy, it's shown that most of her mutilations were post-mortem. So it's like right. this weird rage fury that's like he already killed her probably from the, like when he shoots her. Yeah. But the anger is like taken over. He carved a letter T over her left breast, mm-hmm. gouged her eyes out, put them in a jewelry box as a momentum, mm-hmm. and continued to mutilate her body. Mm-hmm. It's... So I'll say that for you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, just to, I mean, just to show you how disgusting right. man, this man was. And it's just like so senselessly violent. Like, I just can't, like, it's, ugh, it just makes me really, like, queasy because it's mm-hmm. just so, like... I, I can't even put it into words. Like, it's just beyond, like, killing, like, which is obviously terrible. Obviously, he's shooting all these people. He's stabbing these people. We're now up to, like, I believe five or six at this point. Not to take away from those, but this one in particular is incredibly, and his first victim. They're both so torturous and, mm-hmm. like, violent. It's and just really, well, of course. And like, they're female. Like, they violence always? on women is still a thing, you know? Yes. It will always be a thing. I know. I hate it. It's sad. So, um, so, but this is another very important one. Aside from its extremely violent nature, this is actually the first time that he leaves a footprint, a pair of Avia sneakers, and the police are able to photograph and cast it, and this becomes essentially their first piece of, like, hard evidence to go on and that they start linking these cases together because of this shoe print Mm -hmm. um they also found bullets at the scene that were matched to those found from the prior attacks and they realized that they have like a serial attacker on Mm -hmm. their hands which was now like kind of a new but known concept in the minds of like the fbi and police force and all that so they start realizing like oh shit these things match like this is a full-on thing like great we have another one (laughs) yes and also the saddest thing is that um their bodies were found by their son which i hate that is that is yeah i read that that the son came in the next day and had to see this it just breaks my heart it does it really i can't even like bring myself to ever like be put in that situation and i think Man, I'm just going to, I'm only hopping from soapbox to soapbox. But the thing that's so sad is that when you hurt people, it's not them that are the ones that bear the brunt of it. It's those around them. Mm -hmm. Like this person's life, discovering his parents, he's ruined. Like you've broken him. Yeah. It's just, again, like senseless violence. But don't worry, we'll go back on that soapbox. When we talk about the trials, just starring our new podcast, Soapboxes. Soapbox. Fast forward on May 14th. Fast forward like five whole days. <laughs> on May 14th, 1985, uh, Ramirez is now back in Monterey Park. So get our little map out of California. Yes. Bill Doy and his wife Lillian are attacked in their home. He shoots uh, Bill in the face, which is sort of becoming his MO. It's like mm-hmm. shoot the husband, get him out of the worry. Yes. Um, and then he, um, be- so he actually shoots him. 
as Bill was going for his gun mm-hmm. and then beats him again I think that rage of like you resisted him yeah. and so he like attacks him mm-hmm. beats him and then he ties and rapes uh sorry ties and rapes Lillian in the bedroom and then ransacks their home which becomes his other calling card so kill the husband or attack the husband first and then rob the home that he's attacking. Yeah, that's all from you know the education 100%. of hundred percent cousin Mikey. It's very it become it especially the further he goes. Yes, it becomes very like repetitive his pattern, which it, they all do. But the man is the biggest threat. Yep. the biggest threat of the way. And then use like yeah whatever. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, Bill did die of his injuries while in the hospital. So, May 29th, nineteen eighty five, Ramirez drives a stolen car to Monrovia and he enters the home of Mabel Ma Bell 83 and her sister Florence Nettie Lang 81 these sweet little ladies no. um, he attacks them with a hammer that he finds and he uh, yes he sorry hmm. he attacks them both with a hammer and then he ties them up and he rapes uh, Florence Lang And then he uses lipstick that he finds to draw pentagrams on their thighs as well as the walls of their bedroom. And they actually both were found alive but had fallen into comas. And Mm -hmm. then Mabel Bell died in the hospital of her injuries. And this is also the first time that this sort of satanic influence creeps in. Satanic? Panic. Let's talk about that satanic panic. Yeah, satanic panic came out in the 80s. Well, yes. it started in the 70s, but then it was uh, it spiraled in the 80s due to the likes of metal rock bands. And this, I think, goes back to what we were talking about at the top of the episode. Mm-hmm. He really was born to the time that he helped create. This, I think, now, Satanism is kind of not really seen in the same way. Mm-hmm. At the time, Satanic Panic was not only very real, it was taken very seriously. So, like, the fact that he was, like, drawing pentagrams, and as we'll see as he moves forward, like, some of these things that he's making people do and things Mm -hmm. that he himself is proclaiming, they're not sort of, like, tongue-in-cheek. Like, right, we have Lucifer on TV, and, like, it's not... We don't view it the same way. Exactly. At the time, especially, like, growing up in a very religious upbringing, like, Satanic Panic was, like, real, real. Even in college, like... The 2000s, our professors would talk about things that were like textbook satanic panic like three decades later. Mm -hmm. And it was... 100% 100% real like they took it very yeah, seriously a lot of people took a practice and just transformed it mm-hmm. into violence is mm-hmm. what it was because I mean I've seen some interviews of individuals who are part of the church mm-hmm. of Satan and they're like we don't do this Mm-mm. This is, look we have a different viewpoint yeah but these people literally took what we were practicing and blew it out of mm-hmm. proportion Yes, and I think he's the perfect example of that, but mm-hmm. he is, like, the poster child of satanic panic. Like, mm-hmm. this heathen is breaking into homes and, like, ritualistically killing people. That's not what he was doing, but that's what it looks like. You walk in and there's pentagrams everywhere. Right. Like, oh, shit. So, that was the first one. Um, she, and so, okay. Uh, the next day, so now we're on May 30th. He drives to Burbank. <laughs> Super close. It's fine. I love it. It's like five minutes away. No big deal. We're not on the border. It's totally fine. Um, 
and he enters in the home of Carol Kyle. He bounds her at gunpoint and her 11-year-old son, which again, like, you're ruining these children. I mean, you're ruining everybody, but like something about the children just like breaks my heart. Like, you don't unsee that. Like, Mm -hmm. you gotta go to therapy. Yeah, it's traumatizing. Um, And then this is his other MO, the third one, is that he starts binding one member and releasing one member and forcing the released member to like give him a tour of the home Mm -hmm. and show him where the valuables are. Right. So he releases her while her son is bound and takes her and forces her to direct him to the family valuables. He then sodomizes her. He also tells her not to look at him and threatens her saying that he will cut her eyes out, which we know he has done. Um, he flees the scene, he binds them back together, throws them in the closet, but they actually both survive. So that is like a slight divergence, but it's because in my opinion, my my super professional opinion, uh, that he starts this new pattern where one is giving like the tour of the valuables and he's, this is now his third calling card moving forward. Because one is giving him the control. 100%. He's listening to him. He's like, oh good, Mm -hmm. good, right. So... Uh, now, July 2nd, 1985, he drives to Arcadia, another stolen car. Again, look at his rap sheet. Mm-hmm. All these stolen cars. Everything comes to a head. Uh, he enters the home of Mary Louise Cannon, 75. He enters her home, finds her sleeping, and beats her with a lamp and also stabs her. She is found dead at the crime scene. Uh, three days later, July 5th, Ramirez breaks into the home and now is in Sierra Madre of 16-year-old Whitney Bennett. Uh, He attacks her with a tire iron. So this is the thing that I find really interesting. Uh, For a serial killer, he does not use the same weapon, which is a little different. I guess it's all physical attacks, but he uses guns and handheld weapons as well, which is like a little bit of a divergence. Yeah, it's his stealth mode, and Mm -hmm. um, we'll go into it too Mm -hmm, because, mm -hmm. and I'll touch on this too, he's a sociopath. People are like, no, he's a psychopath. No, no, no. Sociopaths have they commit disorganized crime. Mm-hmm. He doesn't. He doesn't plan these crimes. He never yeah. did. It's always to what he is able to find in yeah. the home, mm-hmm. which sort of dictates it. Um, so he attacks her. He, case in point, is looking for a knife in the kitchen and can't find it. So he results or he resorts, excuse me, to strangling her with a telephone cord. But sparks emanate from the cord and she like kind of jolts and starts to breathe again. And he takes it as a sign that like God is intervening to save her and he flees the scene. Which like, I mean, thank God for her, right? I know. And she actually ends up having to get 478 stitches to her scalp, but she survives. And I just think like of all the things you Satanist, quote unquote, Mm mm-hmm then like you think God intervenes and that's enough to like stop you. It, it just shows it, yeah. the level of his sanity is yeah. non-existent. Like, whoa, whoa, God yeah. intervened. You're like there is a God. <laughs> yeah, it ugh, just breaks my heart. But thank God for her and she survives, but mm-hmm. she did have 478 stitches, which is insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, two days later, July 7th, uh, Ramirez burglarizes the home of Joyce Lucille Nelson in Monterey Park. So now we're back. So again, this was the sort of thing it's just this rotating wheel of which city is getting attacked. So now he's back in Monterey Park. Right. Um, he finds her sleeping in her home, and he actually beats her just using his hands and feet. But 
because of that, a shoe print from an Avia sneaker is left imprinted on her body. So it's like, again, they start piecing these things together. He leaves that scene, actually ends up coming back to Monterey Park, and enters the home of Sophie Dickman, who is 63. He assaults her, gun uh, handcuffs her at gunpoint. He does steal all of her jewelry, and then allegedly has her swear to Satan that he has everything of value in the home. And so this is like, again, full-on satanic panic. Like, mm-hmm. he made me swear to Satan. Uh, <laughs> mm, love it. So now, uh, July 20th, 1985, he drives another stolen car to Glendale. Again, mm-hmm. super close. Right. Please leave us alone. <laughs> um, he chose the home of Layla Needing, 66, and her husband, Max Needing, sorry, uh, bursts into their room, attacks them both. He had a machete, kills them by shooting them in the head, and then mutilated their bodies post-mortem with the machete, and then again robs the home. So now a full-on pattern has been established, like attack, imprison, burglarize. Right. Sodomize is also sprinkled throughout there, but this one in particular that he just happened to not. Um, but it's all very patternistic at this point. And right. that's not a real word, but I made it up. <laughs> um, Trademark it. Yeah, right. So he actually sells those items from the needing home almost immediately and breaks in. So that this is the same day, July 20th, after selling the home or the items that he stole from them, he enters the Kovanath family, murdering uh, the husband Instantly, and then attacking the wife, raping her, beating her, and sodomizing her. He binds their eight-year-old son and then drags her around the house, making her swear to Satan that she wasn't hiding anything from him of value. So again, full pattern at this point. Um, August 6, 1985, Ramirez drives to Northridge, like just everywhere. Like we're within like spitting distance. You know, just 45 minutes. And this is... little sidebar this is why people start getting so panicked because if you've never been to LA Mm -hmm. it basically is all these cities that have grown so quickly that they just merge into one big city so like there's not how it is in other parts of the country for example Ohio where I grew up Mm -hmm. where it's like Cincinnati two hours north Columbus two hours north Cleveland with like space and farmland in between all of these cities are touching each other. It's yeah, just it's, Los Angeles. It's just a long commute. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just but like all these cities are back end to each other. So right. it's not like he's in Burbank and then he's all the way like he's in the next city over, but mm-hmm. that means like the distance of several neighborhoods. It's like too close, too real too similar like that's exactly. our family like that's my situation this is why i want to stay in the city and this uh-huh. is what i tell my husband it's like look at what's going on this mm-hmm. happens this happened in suburban areas mm-hmm. not in the city i think that's part <laughs> of the reason why it like really unsettles me too is like some of his later victims which we're getting ready to go into mm-hmm. are like my age like in their late 20s early 30s right and for whatever chauvinistic reason I always am like oh I'm I'm fine I'm a big guy no one's gonna be able to like overpower me or attack me or like break into my home and then he has these victims that are coming up actually these next ones 
that are literally my age and mm-hmm. are like my situation. And I think that's part of it is that it's so unnerving. And I can only imagine at the time you're hearing these stories on the news and you're like, I mean, that's my family. We have an eight year old son. Mm-hmm. We fell asleep on our couch. Like we forgot to lock our door. Yeah. Too close. And it's like Burbank. That's one city over. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. I'm fine. I'm clearly handling this very well, as very you can tell proud. from my little like shaky voice. And I'm voice. sure our listeners are like, we're very proud of you, Bryce. Yeah, they're like, grow up. I'm like, I can't. <laughs> I just can't. Um, so let's see. Uh, he drives to Northridge. We're on August 6th. Breaks into the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson. Uh, Virginia, 27, wakes up from, she hears him and he shoots her in the face and then shoots Chris in the temple and attempts to flee. Chris actually ends up fighting back and avoids two more shots. They actually both survived their injuries, thankfully. Um, August 8th, 1985, so two days later, Ramirez drove to Diamond Bar and enters the home of Sakina Abawath, 27, and her husband, Elias, 31, which is how old I am. This is the one that, like, sort of unsettled me, I think. Mm -hmm. They all did, but whatever. Um, He enters the home, instantly kills the husband, Elias, and handcuffs and beats Sakina, forcing her to reveal, and now I'm a broken record, the location of the family's jewelries. He rapes her, he sodomizes her, and he makes her swear on Satan that she wouldn't scream and that this was everything that they had. Uh, The three-year-old enters the room. He ties the child up and continues to rape her, again, ruining his child's life. Mm -hmm. Um, When he leaves, she unties her son and sends him to the neighbors to get help. She survives. They both survive. Mm -hmm. The husband does not. Ramirez has now started following the media coverage of his own crimes. Right. Like, again, I think the media does as much it or more does. damage than Well, they can. our mayor didn't help any at Mm-mm. all when she went, you know, um, mm. and stated for the record in front of cameras that she had all this evidence mm-hmm. collected from the police and the FBI. You know, that was yes. the whole ordeal with the shoes, his Aria shoes, which he ends up throwing over the mm-hmm. San Francisco Bridge at one point because that's how they were catching him. Like, I love Diane Feinstein. Yeah. She's done amazing things. But she has. girl, what were you thinking? thinking? I know. And they were pissed. They're like, Mm-mm. Oh, they were Mm-mm. mad. They were really at mad. Her. And, you know, because of her, he was already inching one step ahead yeah. of the authorities. So that actually is the next one is that he, because he's following the coverage, he goes to the San Francisco area. He yeah. like gets out of L.A. Mm-hmm. And he enters the home of Peter and Barbara Pan on August 18th. He shoots Peter in the temple. He then beats and sexually assaults Barbara, age 62, and then leaves her for dead using lipstick to scrawl a pentagram and scrawling like satanic ritual or right. phrases on their walls. Um, they then discover a shoe print from the pan home mm-hmm. matches the Los Angeles attacks. So now they realize that he possibly has moved. And like you're saying, Diane Feinstein. Yeah, that's when she goes on. She for, has her yeah. press conference and divulges that information. Girl, what are you thinking? <laughs> Um, and they're like, Matt, the detectives are like pissed at her. What the fuck, Diane? And I get it. I'm sure she thought she was like doing, doing a service. Well. Like, yeah. we know that he's here. Like, this increased coverage will like scare him. Right. It informs him. And so he actually finally throws all away his shoes that have been linking mm-hmm. the avias. Mm-hmm. Um, throws them over the Golden Gate Bridge. Trey dramatic. Um, 
He then heads back to Los Angeles, and on August 24th in Mission Viejo, he tries to enter the home of James Romero Jr., but um, his son, James Romero III, yeah. wakes up and hears him trying to get in the home and like runs to his parents' bedroom, and they all wake up and think that someone's just trying to like burglarize their home they call the police but they think it's just like a petty theft which like i think is the ultimate denial (laughs) we're not being attacked by this noted serial killer it wasn't the valley intruder it's (laughs) fine we're fine we're fine so because of the commotion he flees but the son or i'm sorry james jr the Mm -hmm. dad races outside and he's able to identify the color make model of the car and a partial license number but they just think that it's some random home robbery yeah it was not no but the son actually caught a glimpse of him right and so this yeah because he plays a part in the trials too and you could go angel i know he was so sweet and he was so like focused Mm -hmm. he's like no this is what he looked like and this is what he stole and this is the car and And the wherewithal to like get your parents and like trust your gut that something's wrong at that age mm-hmm. is like rare right i think in many other cases like predators and like kidnappers and serial killers like prey on the innocence and like trusting of children who are just like oh it's like a grown-up like what they're saying must be right <laughs> and then they're like kidnapped and this he did the opposite of like no someone's outside and they shouldn't be and like something's not right mm-hmm. you little warrior <laughs> um so after this he flees the scene ramirez then breaks into the home of bill carnes 30 and his fiance Inez Erickson, 29. Uh, Ramirez enters the bedroom of the sleeping couple. They hear the gun, actually, mm-hmm. and wake up. He shoots... Uh, sorry, lost my little spot. He shoots Bill three times. And then Ramirez tells Inez that I'm the Night Stalker. So now he's starting to, like buy into his own hype like surprise i'm the night stalker yes and so he tells her he's the night stalker ramirez then forces her to swear that she loves satan and then he beats her and bounds her with neckties from the closet no he then sodomizes her he rapes her and then forces him her excuse me forces her to show him where all the valuables are and again forces her to swear on satan that there's nothing left and then as he's leaving, he makes her swear that he that she will tell them the Night Stalker was here. Mm-hmm. So now he knows that he's, like, infamous. And he likes it, I think. Again, mm-hmm. Psychology 101. I, he's getting a little pompous. Yeah, like, is. don't take my word for it, but this is just my opinion. Uh-huh. Um, and if you need psychotherapy, I'm here for you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. Can you imagine? No. <laughs> no, no, no. No, we're fine. Our inbox is about to get real messy. <laughs> um... <laughs> So actually, he, the husband, or the fiance, I'm sorry, his bullets, two of them are removed and he survives as well. Um, And because of that, he's able to give a detailed description, Erickson is, and police are able to obtain a footprint from their home, which matches the 11 and a half size, if not make, of the Avia shoe. Mm -hmm. So they then find that stolen car on August 28th. And they are able to obtain a single foot 
fingerprint from the rear view mirror even though the car looked like it had been wiped right. down mm-hmm. he like he missed the spot <laughs> um and they now know that it's richard ramirez, ramirez who based has based on that fingerprint that one that one fingerprint print which matches and the shoe print that matches and he had enough misdemeanors and minor crimes in texas that they now know who it who is. He is they have his picture on file yes. his mugshot and so they start now they've decided they release uh, the mugshot from Ramirez from over a year ago at this point. Uh, I think it says the mugshot was from 1984. Mm-hmm. And they have it for a car theft that he committed. And they allegedly, um, they like in the press conference, like, we know who you are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And soon everyone else will, and there will be no place that you can hide. So now. Yep. It's known that Richard Ramirez is the Night Stalker, but he remains at large. Right. What chaos? It was, it was complete chaos because we were like, we, I think we felt it, you know, as a city, mm-hmm. as a whole, that like we were getting close to him, mm-hmm. and he knew it too. He resorted back, I think it was to Texas, to go and hide out with his siblings, and then yes. he came back in bus to the L.A. Greyhound station, and police were on standby, but they're on standby in the front entrance. Ugh. They neglected to have cops on standby at the bus entrance. Which, like, have they ever been to a bus station before? Like, Mm -mm. I think it's because they assumed that he would be trying to flee the city. Exactly. But because he left when he did, he didn't realize how plastered, excuse me, how plastered his face had been all Mm -hmm. over. I don't think he realized that either. And so I think they just thought, like, oh, well, he's going to try and escape, but he was actually coming back in. Yeah. Check both entrances. He was coming back in and he was getting desperate because as he left the station, he was called out by two women in a shop. They called him. They recognized they him. They recognized him. People are recognizing him. And the reason why he came back is he had a sister living in his East L.A. Mm. And No, he had a sister or brother, one of those two, li- living in East L.A. And he was trying to find them, to which is why he makes a run for it into that neighborhood, which he will very much regret because it turns out he goes into this neighborhood. He tries to find his sister or his brother. He attempts to rob this woman just Mm -hmm. coming out of her house, going to work, going into her car, attempts to rob her and steal the car. The woman makes a big commotion. The husband hears it, comes out and starts to, you know, beat the shit out of him. Mm. Ramirez tries to threaten him with a gun and the guy's like, fuck you, bro beats the shit out of him mm-hmm. the commotion carries on to the neighbors and to people across the street building a fence they grab metal poles mm-hmm. and they beat him and i think this is like the very lord of the flies-esque moment yes. like the city is so <laughs> afraid yeah. everyone is so on edge and it, it sort of becomes this like snowball effect like with people literally like a movie recognizing him and then like galvanizing the community and Mm -hmm. they like chase him with pitchforks essentially you know what I mean with metal pipes and like defend their community it's like enough is enough 
we are now taking matters into our own hand and they beat him until the cops show up and pull the mob off, off of, of him, him. yeah like, which i kind of love like mm-hmm. i know that like justice is blind and like we should let the system work its ways but like the vindictive part of me is like yeah fucking beat his ass like he <laughs> deserves it right mob mentality like justice i love it it was and you don't fuck with people in east la dude no no those are some ride or die people should have stayed yeah should have stayed in texas east <laughs> Dumb. Dum, 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 dum. But I, you're my people. Nah, bro. Uh-uh. Nah, you stay in Texas. Give me that pipe. Yeah. Give me that pipe. We are East LA mm-hmm. por vida, not yeah. por you, okay? No, it just, and they really do. It's like the community they really. Up. They were like, fuck you, dude. And, they, and after he was caught, this was on August 31st, mm-hmm. after he was badly beaten, they um, have a huge celebration mm-hmm. later on that evening. Then whole neighborhood... And, and serves him right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had a huge celebration. Like, they caught him. They yeah. caught the nut stalker. They caught El Rabon. I mean, and just, like, the sort of tenacity of the community. Because, like, he he doesn't just sit there. Like, he attempts to flee. He, like, jumps several fences, like, cuts through several yards. Mm-hmm. He's, like, trying to get away. And he's young. He's, like, a fit person. Yeah. And they, like, pursue him. Like, no, enough is enough. We know it's him. We will not stop. Right. I think they would have killed him. No, they, they would have. Like... And we'll go into that in the paranormal aftermath because I have a nice little treat for you all. Now we enter (laughs) the trial, conviction, sentencing, and the womanizing of Richard Ramirez. Bless. Yes. So he uh, is caught. He's put on trial. And it's continuously pushed off. Mm. The delay marked by a series of motions and bickering between the prosecutors and defense attorney because the geographical spread of the crimes and also complicated the scope of the trial with jurisdictional issues. Mm -hmm. Some of the charges against Ramirez were dropped in order to expedite what was becoming a long journey to justice. Mm. So this was a whole fiasco. This was a whole series of delays. I mean, it, it was it should have been an open and shut case, but it just kept on. They never are. No, never I get is. It. And to add more salt to the wound, the whole court trial was being filmed, and he knew it. And he decided, well, I'm going to act like a jackass. Mm-hmm. So he painted pentagrams on his hand. He winked at the cameras. He, you know, cursed at the judge. And during the um, trial, they brought people to the stand. They brought the little Romero boy to the stand. And in an interview, Romero would say, it was a two-week process for me to go up there in that stand and to be intimidated by him and his team. And he said, there are times where I had to look at him and he would wink at me. He would smirk at me. And it was scary. Oh, yeah. Poor little kid. But he's like, I fought through it. Mm -hmm. And what was even more shocking is after the coverage of his trials, of his fiascos, of his smirks and smiles, were his fans coming into light. And this poor little Romero kid who went on the stand to testify was even getting death threats from his fans. What is from wrong with people? Richard Ramirez's fans. He already started having a big fan club. People defending him. People threatening this little boy's life. Saying, like, if you go and testify against Richard, we're going to kill you. Like, sometimes... <laughs> what the fuck? I see these stories of, like, I don't know, 
good things. And I'm like, oh, like maybe humanity's not so bad. But like low key, yes, we are. We're the worst. We get like everything we deserve. And like, why are we such a garbage species? Like, yeah, the fuck? Mm-hmm. You're going to threaten a child. Yes. My faith has in humanity like oh, plummeted pe- after people, reading people reports will always of disappoint this. you. Like it's just so yes. sad. Yes. Well, sure enough, there was light at the end of the tunnel. Yes. He was sentenced to death. Thank goodness at San Quentin uh, prison, but it didn't stop the the people, his fan club, to still make a big commodity out of this guy. Mm. So, yes, guys, be prepared. We're going to go a bit on our soapboxes here. I mean, if they've made it this far, then they know that this is Soapbox Island and we are lifelong residents. So the Night Stalker is now given the name Death Row Romeo. After, well, during the trials and after the trials, he had a slew of women pining for his attention and his affection. So women were coming to the courthouse trying to go into, you know, the court hearings. They were having fights out side of the courthouse because they were jealous of who had most attention from him who was writing him the most letters like i cannot get a second date (laughs) like let's just like not to like make this all about me but what the fuck (laughs) like people are like oh being single in los angeles is not that hard yes it fucking is the night stalker Has more action than me. Like, what the fuck? I know. The Night Stalker has more followers than me. Yeah, literally. Seriously. If someone wrote me a letter, I think I would black out. I'd be like, what? (laughs) You took the time to sit down and write me a letter and send me a picture? Just ugly weeping. That was another thing. He had had bags. Not just, and you know, several envelopes. The man had bags of letters from admirers and women Women who sent him pictures of themselves in provocative, you know, garments and poses. Um, we're going to post this on our Instagram. There's this, there's a story on a current affair. This is an old show that was big in the 90s, but they did an interview on these two women. One was an ex-porn star and one was just fucking crazy. Oh, and they fought, they were the two that fought in front of the courthouse. Jesus. And both of them felt the need to come to the courthouse and plead their love for this man and fight like fight them like fight each other for this man and the uh, i just <laughs> the news not. reporter was Ugh. on it and i i like applauded him he's like what is wrong with you <laughs> and i don't get this i don't get this i mean first of all moral like baseline you're a bad person like he did these horrible things and you're like justifying it right or ignoring it whatever it ends that like makes it so that you can think that you're in love with him not okay like he did the things that he did second and this is the much pettier of the two right he is gross he's disgusting you don't like here's the thing and this is gonna make me sound like a crazy person but like charles manson i like low-key get it Mm-hmm. He's charismatic. He is dirty but handsome. Like it's different, kind of. Whatever. I sound crazy. I don't know. I have to disagree because Richard was charismatic. Yeah, charismatic is maybe not 
the thanks point. to the media. Yeah, I I just mean more like he's so foul looking. Like his fit, his mouth is rotted. Like that was yeah. the thing that all the victims talk, that survived his talked about. Breath. His breath. He suffered from halitosis, and like his teeth were literally rotting out of his yeah. head. Like, and you're you see that, and you're like, ooh, swoon. I'm here for it. What? I I don't get it. Again, I, this I is really, so petty comparatively. No, but. I, it's it's no, it's it really bothers me. Mm-hmm. It, the, and I will go on a rant about it. Sorry, guys, if you want to time jump into the paranormal aftermath. But I I really invite <laughs> people to really message us. Like, what really irks me is when I see people with tattoos of serial killers on their bodies. Oh, when they wear it on their shirts, it's like I would love. To see Becky with the Dahmer or Becky with the Ramirez tattoo. Is that something that people really do? They do this. I was unaware. There was an article that I found on one of um, my favorite podcasts, Hillbilly Horror Stories. Hi. On Facebook, this girl posted this article of this 25-year-old girl who had the bite mark of Ted Bundy that was left on one of his victims of the FSU massacre. Jesus. She found the post-mortem of the bite mark took it to a tattoo artist and had that bite mark tattooed on the same place as the victim that is that is disgusting so morbid already thank you for making women look even more crazy sure sure, sorry not sorry but what the fuck i would like so i would like for someone to email me and explain this to me like why do they think this is cool i would love to sit down and see this interaction happen when one of those people wearing the shirt of a serial killer or has like the tattoo of a serial killer come face to face with the family member of the victim right that i think that's like what we were talking about earlier where it's like this weird like deification i would love to see that the murderer (laughs) and then we like forget why do we glamorize the victims. it it's so exactly bizarre. we were talking about this earlier and i get this like we all have a fascination with this yes i call this my pool theory i have a pool theory i'm going to trademark this mm-hmm. but this is hear me out here's the things we all have this interest especially mm-hmm. with podcasts you know oh you know my favorite murder wine mm-hmm. and crime and that's why we drink you know we all are so intrigued in getting inside the mind of a convicted killer. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems terrifying, but part of this fear is part of the incentive to analyze and dissect their totally their psyches and their lives. It's a way for us to touch the darkness, mm-hmm. this fear, without fully losing ourselves. Mm-hmm. To me, I look at this fear like a big black pool. There's some of us that like to stand afar and observe this pool. Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. Here I am. <laughs> There's us who like to do podcasts. Yeah. You guys that like to listen to these podcasts, and we're all for it. Mm-hmm. Where we're the type that we will go to that pool, dip our toe into that water, hell, even sit on the edge of that mm-hmm. pool and dunk our legs into the water mm-hmm. without fully emerging ourselves 100% into the darkness. But then there's bitches like Becky with, you know, these serial killer tattoos. Or the serial killer t-shirts mm-hmm. who would take off their clothes and fucking deep sea dive mm-hmm. into the deep end of this pool. You know, losing herself into the abyss at the same time losing her own damn humanity. Yeah. And for us that's sitting on the edge, dipping our toe in the water, we're not going to fully submerge ourselves into right. that deep end. Their boundaries. Yeah. You know. I got my little water wings on. <laughs> I'm going to float. I got my floaties on. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But I mean, I do not get that. I just, I, I think it's disgusting and yeah. I think it's such a big disrespect. I really yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. I know. 
But don't do it, y'all. <laughs> in the long run, it turns out that there's always someone for everyone. While convicted, apparently, <laughs> Jesus. While incarcerated, Ramirez married one of his supporters. Again. 41-year-old Doreen Leoy in 1996 became his wife. His long-awaited appeal finally made it to the California State Supreme Court in 2006 before being rejected. Good. Ramirez eventually was linked to more vicious crimes. Like we said before, in 2009, a DNA sample connected him with the April 10th, 1984 Mm -hmm. rape and murder of a nine-year-old girl. Mm. After nearly 24 years on death row, Richard Ramirez died on June 7th, 2013 at the age of 53 from complications related to B-cell lymphoma. According to San Quentin Corrections officers, Ramirez's death came shortly after he was taken to Marin General Hospital in Green Bay, California. He was literally the color of a highlighter green marker. Like it was that bad. Damn. According to his wife, he was a changed man. He was a loving man. But according to family members and friends of Doreen, they felt that she was a recluse who lived in a fantasy world. Doreen. Goddamn girl. (sighs) Doreen, Doreen. If you listen to any of her interviews, she's like Looney Tunes. Another one. Also, like, sidebar. I love the defense like he's a changed person i always just be like and the fuck who the fuck cares like whenever like and i am someone who's we've talked about this i'm religious like Mm -hmm. i believe what i believe all these things but like whenever they kind of try and gloss things over and like well i found faith or i like changed or i'm like remorseful now i just be like and so what? Like, it doesn't change no. the past. And, like, I guess that's Especially not very... Especially his past. Yeah, like, I guess that's not very forgiving no, of me. But, not. like, I don't give a fuck. Like, I made a choice. And, exactly. like, I, I almost would... Like, I think, you know, there have been times where people have said, like, you know, like, I forgive for me. They're not good. They're not changed. But for myself, I have had to forgive. And I have so much respect for that Mm -hmm. because that says something about the forgiver. Like that's them being a good person. But whenever people try and tell me like, oh, they've changed. They deserve our forgiveness. I'm like, no. Nope. I don't give a fuck. Like just because someone's quote changed, it doesn't erase what they've done. They've still have their past that they must atone for sorry but like yeah i just find it so funny and that like i love of course she said that like he's changed he's so loving no, girl that doesn't change the that fact doesn't change of what he did like yeah like what so makes what? you think what makes you think being married to this man if he was to be released that he's not gonna do the same shit to you like he did to the other 13 right. well, 14 or plus victims it seems like the you most know? like the furthest possible conclusion you can follow of the mindset that we all kind of have of like well i'll be the exception i can fix them or i can change yes. them or they're different yes. around me like we all do that like mm-hmm. god knows i've been in that I situation where i'm like him. oh like no it's you don't know how it is like he's different with me no but you know whatever <laughs> again so what do you think hmm. in all in all with richard was it nature or nurture like or both you know mm. like what do you think was it was it something that he was born with or was it something maybe it's maybelline <laughs> that was due to his environment no you know what honestly i really think it in this case it's nurture i think 
all the pieces sort of fell into place for him. Right. The influences that he had, the injuries, the life. 100%. I just think even if he had just been one person in his life that was like not showing him like decapitated heads. Right. Yes. What about you? Like what? So nature versus nurture for you. I think it was a it was a mixture of both. Mm. It was, oh, okay. Yeah, I feel like it was both. You know, he was already he. I feel like he was already a sociopath. Like he was diagnosed a sociopath by a lot of specialists. Do you think? Sorry to interrupt, mm-hmm. but do you think that that was as a result? No. of the head injuries, or that he was, and then those only exacerbated. I don't think it was a result of the head injuries. Okay. I think maybe it. It, 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 it was the it was the stage for it mm, I love that yeah I feel like it was the stage for it what I think and what I read from other articles from other specialists yeah you know he was you know labeled a sociopath mm-hmm. a lot of people like to debate no he's a psychopath no he's a sociopath because he was able to develop bonds sociopaths oh, are wow. able to develop bonds is that uh, sorry actually what is like the main difference good question sociopaths are irrational they're irresponsible and they have a hard time blending into society where psychopaths can blend into society but they're more calculating mm-hmm. they're more intelligent and put together and i'm not saying that both are all going to be serial killers they can lead normal lives it's just like you know the media just let us to believe that all of them are going mm-hmm. out to get us it's so funny you bring that up because there's a really cool interview with amy schumer mm-hmm. and she interviews a sociopath right and this is like the main crux of the interview like right the person's face is like blurred out mm-hmm. they like alter the voice right because of the stigma and the person mentions like yeah, we're not all like walking around murdering, murdering people. people. Exactly. I just don't have the like, people, empathy. Right. Exactly. He, they're able to have bonds. Yeah. Ramirez was able to have bonds with his siblings. Right. With his cousin. He was able to develop those bonds. Psychopaths are not able mm. to do that. They have no remorse, no emotion, nothing. Mm-hmm. They just act on their own impulses. Now with Ramirez, you know, he had a lot of disorganized crimes sure. with psychopaths their crimes are highly organized right look at ted bundy jeffrey dahmer john way gacy um there they had a specific type of victim yes they had a plan to kill that victim and they were very meticulous and very very precise with their murders wow yes ramirez wasn't he was yeah. very sloppy but he had the training of cousin mikey mm-hmm to me what it all comes down to is a case of like in the situation of genetics loading a gun but maybe the childhood environment pulling the trigger for him yeah you know Mm -hmm. that is what i think it was it was just the crack of the foundation started with his father and progressed Mm. with his cousin and what he was subjected to during his you know puberty stages that was so important that was that was to me like that was the straw that broke the camel's back well, guys, now it's time for the most important part. You made it. Of the podcast, of our episode. Yeah. The Paranormal Aftermath. I got to sit down and speak to Mario Becerra, Amaze. who is the author of Haunted East Los Angeles. Mario Becerra and his cousin Victor Huesca were both the co-authors of this book. It is a very small book guys it's like a pamphlet it's like a pamphlet it's It's like 39 pages i bought this book on amazon and i read it 
during my trip to Central America. And it was such a good read. I couldn't put it down. It's a collection, I think, of four or five stories of ghost stories that were collected um, based on interviews that they had done with people who live in and around the East LA area. Amazing. Yeah, so here it is, the interview with Mario Becerra. So guys, I'm sitting here with Mario. If I butcher this, please forgive me. Is it Becerra, right? Or Becerra? Yeah, Becerra. Becerra, of course. I should know this. I am half Spanish. So <laughs> you are the author of Haunted East Los Angeles, a book that you written back in 2015. Is that correct? Or earlier? No, that's I wrote, we wrote it back in 2015. That's correct. I just got done reading this book over my December break. And I, I mean, it's such a great read and it was such an easy read and it was such an eclectic collection of short ghost stories based out of East LA, which I found fascinating and different from all the other, I guess, repetitious stories that you usually hear in and around Los Angeles and Hollywood, such as like the haunted Hollywood sign, you know, the Roosevelt, the Cecil, but here you had mentioned like stories like the Evergreen Cemetery, uh, Casa del uh, Mexicana, no, Mexicano, and of course, the haunted house on Hubbard Street. But um, tell us real quickly, what was like, what inspired you to sit down and just write these stories? It was family, family. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, my cousin Victor is really into the paranormal. And I have, uh, I, I have a, a small business that I run. And so, you know, they told me, <clears throat> he told me that uh, he would come over from time to time to the office and tell me his ghost stories and we'd hang out. You know, I said, well, you know, I have a great idea. Why don't you, you know, why don't we make, draw me, you know, just, just write a little book. You go out, you investigate, you, you know, you find the locations and then I'll sit here, I'll listen to you and then we'll put it down on, uh, on paper. That way, you know, we can hang out because I wanted to grow closer to him. He's my, he's my cousin. Of course. And, uh, we, you know, we connected that way. I wasn't, I, you know, I like the paranormal. I think you know, it was <laughs> always fun, but not like him. Not like him. He really loved it. So, uh, yeah, we would get together like once a week and, you know, he'd call me and we'd be in touch on the phone all the time. And, you know, we, we would discuss places and, you know, we finally decided on these five places and we did as much research as we possibly could into the locations. And then the, the book just kind of came together. And that was that was the motivation behind it. It was family. That that's so awesome. The paranormal bringing families together. That is so cool. For sure. Oh my god. And and I mean, these are some great stories. So um, your cousin went out. He interviewed. He even investigated these locations, and he brought back the input and um, you know the analysis and everything into your hands. And you're like, okay, I'm just gonna put together these words, and we're gonna just put it all in a book, pretty much. Pretty much. Pretty much that's the way it happened. Oh my goodness, that's so cool. And you guys are natives. You guys are legit, like, Angelino natives, right? And you were born and raised in East Los Angeles, correct? Yes, I was born uh, in a hospital called East L.A. Doctors Hospital on Whittier Boulevard. So I don't think it gets more East L.A. than that. And, um, but Victor, Victor was also born in Los Angeles, and we did. We both of us grew up in the East LA Boyle Heights area. So tell me, were you guys present and around during the time of night of the Night Stalker phenomenon? Like, 
did you guys witness the fear and witness what was going on in and around that city during 1984-85 when he was running around crazy? Yeah, <clears throat> I remember it really well, which is very telling because I was only maybe four or five at the time. But I, re- I remember uh, the fear that everyone had. Even mm-hmm. though I was a little boy, you can still sense it. The adults, you would hear them talk about it. And we wouldn't watch uh, news in English. We'd watch it in Spanish because my, my parents are immigrants from Mexico. But, you know, you'd, you'd see on Channel 34, you know, the, the updates on the on the Night Stalker. Although I don't, I don't remember what they used to call him back then. You know, I know they call him the Valley Intruder. But in the, on the Spanish channel, I don't know what the, what how they were referring <laughs> to him. Everyone was afraid. Everyone was afraid. Mm-hmm. And, and now that I'm an adult and I ask people about it, uh you know everyone remembers it really clearly anyone is old enough uh they remember the fear they remember just the panic that the whole city was in uh you know this was way before we had all the dna technology that would probably have caught him a lot sooner i don't know mm-hmm. but uh yeah the, the the city was pumped with fear because of this man wow and you in your book had mentioned um in your story how the neighborhood of East LA was the neighborhood that caught this man. Were you present during that time? Were you and your family witness to when the Night Stalker was caught? I mean, we, we saw him, my mother, my grandfather, and I, we saw him after they had apprehended him. Oh my goodness. You know, goodness. he had gotten beaten by the residents. I didn't know any of that back then. I was a little, little guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, there was a line to see him. He was in the, in the police car with a, with a bandage on him because they had beat him. And we just walked right by him. And I remember even, even in the police car, he was scaring, he was scaring everyone. It's just scary guy, you know, uh, <laughs> He gave but, you that death stare. There are pictures yeah. of him in the back of that car that just looks so eerie. It just, he just, you could just feel like the evil permeating from this man when you look at that yeah, picture. Yeah, guy, guy was evil. Guy was evil. Uh, but yeah, we didn't, I didn't, you know, I wasn't there when they caught him, mm-hmm. but in the aftermath when he was in the police car. And we all ran, and I remember all the helicopters. I don't think people ever talk about that, but the helicopters just right. came out. Uh-huh. News helicopters, police helicopters, it was like a war zone. And yeah, the, everyone everyone in that area came out to see him. It was and it was I remember it was a hot summer day. It was it was pandemonium. Oh my very God. uh you know, that, that kind of stuff you don't forget. <laughs> no, absolutely not. You just remember everything going on from like the sounds of the helicopters, which I'm sure is just unforgettable, the sirens, people and all the commotion and all the tension yeah. and excitement and, and adrenaline, of course, because they finally caught this man. And he tried to rob, I think it was a vehicle from uh, a woman who was just going to work. And her husband came out and was like, no, you, I'm going to beat the crap out of you and beat the crap out of like Richard Ramirez. <laughs> Even though Richard Ramirez, I think, tried to pull a weapon on him. And the husband was like, Mm-mm, not today, not today, Satan, not right now. We're not doing this. Right, right. I, I think they they initially beat him, and I, I may be incorrect, but with a, uh, I think they were putting fencing in. You know those those fence posts that they have those uh, I don't know they're metal steel. Uh-huh. I think they yanked one of those out and just started hitting him with it. Oh my god! <laughs> and 
you know, the man, because uh, the guy was trying, Richard Ramirez was trying to carjack, I think, his wife. Mm-hmm. And with the yelling, the other neighbors came out and neighbors helping neighbors, and they just they just started to wail on him. Oh, wow. And I think if the police hadn't showed up, I think they would have killed him. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. They, I mean, when they have a man cornered like that, they're not going to let him out of their sight, for sure. And they did such a good job, like, to see, like, a community like that just, like, come together to catch, you know, this killer was just, it's, to me, it's so, it's impressive, but so insane at the same time, you know? I'm sure yeah. like, all the adrenaline inside of them was just, like, running. They are like, we caught him, we can't let him go, kind of thing. Yeah, and, you know, I, I'm i not a reporter, so I don't know, <laughs> I'm just the guy who wrote a book, you know? <laughs> but uh, from what I understand, his picture, they... they his picture was on the newspaper in the newspapers that morning mm-hmm. and he had just come back from texas i believe and when he got off the bus he didn't know that his picture was on every newspaper in los angeles and the ladies they recognized him they started yelling at maton the killer <laughs> and that's when that's when he started to run away uh and i think he that's when he went up hubbard street or well, you know he made his way to hubbard street and that's when he thought well i'll just carjack this woman and take off mm-hmm so I think that's that's how it happened because before that he you know he could go anywhere and people didn't know it was him. I mean it's probably he probably just looked like a I don't know like a, like a just a regular you know, creeper or something. <laughs> the regular creeper, yeah. Just a regular creeper, just straight out of school. In, in your book, you talk about the house, um, the haunted house on Hubbard Street, and a family that witnessed Richard Ramirez get arrested and something happened during that interaction where the son of the family had locked eyes with Richard and according to them on um, from that point on something malicious something unearthly kind of attached itself onto that family from th- that point after do, do you want to talk about that a little more about that story sure sure um, you know they caught Richard Ramirez and I interviewed this family and met them. Very nice people. Uh, Victor met them too. Uh, but they started talking about how after they caught him that uh, that very night, I think they uh, they started to smell weird things. No, they started to hear mm-hmm. weird voices, kind of like a radio signal traveling from room to room. Uh, because the son, when when he saw Richard Ramirez, and I, I think he was dabbling in it before, and I think now I, I think that just meeting Richard Ramirez kind of cemented uh, cemented it for him, but he was dabbling in Satanism. And, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know much about Satanism or Christianity or, or the ramifications of, of worship or, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he started dabbling in things that he probably shouldn't have. And it started to to infect his house. Uh, oh, no. He started hearing hearing voices. Mm-hmm. He started to smell these putrid things. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, to make matters worse, I think the brother brought in a Ouija board. Well, there you go. That's it. To try to, try to figure out. <laughs> we what talk was going about on. this. We talk about this in our podcast a lot. When people unknowingly bring in something like that and dabble with things that they don't know, they're gonna welcome something really negative in yeah yeah and i've i've 
I've come to realize that that's the most intelligent answer I can give is mm-hmm. I don't know, right. you know, which means, which means mo- people don't know when mm-hmm. you do stuff like that. You don't really know what you're messing with. Exactly. I don't know. I certainly don't know. <laughs> you're like, I don't but, know. Uh, and I, I don't want to know. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I would, I would probably never mess with a Ouija board. No. <laughs> I've, I've heard too many stories where people have pulled me aside at uh, book talks and they, you know, people are under the assumption that I know something about this stuff and I don't. <laughs> You're like, sorry, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I just know not to mess with it. <laughs> so yeah, there you have it. But, I, but naturally, I listen. Mm-hmm. You know, because people, people are genuinely scared. Yeah. For some people, it's, it's not, uh, you know, Halloween horror nights and the Queen Mary. Some people are genuinely scared. Right. Uh, in a very, in a very real way. So you know, I sit there and I listen to them. But uh, yeah, getting back to the Richard Ramirez stuff, they brought in the Ouija board, and that's when things got worse. Uh, you know, they think they think that the the son was in the in the the beginning stages of possession. I did a little research on that. Uh, he started to, you know, act act according to the criteria of the beginning stages of possession, if you believe in that stuff. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, the what happened was they brought in a priest from the local church to to talk to him and it wasn't like the movies where the you know the priest <laughs> brings out the holy water and sprays it on him and he starts to writhe and it was the priest just kind of befriended him and you know he, he said that that's that's what helped him the priest wasn't judgmental he wasn't you know, he didn't attack him. He just wanted to talk to him about God and just listen to him. Right. And that's what that's what saved him. Oh wow! The power of listening, the power of compassion, is pretty much the whole essence of this tale here. Yeah, yeah. I think we all want to be listened to, mm-hmm. and you know, all of us carry pain inside. And every once in a while, I think we need an ear to sit and listen to us and really be concerned with what's going on in our lives. And I think this, this, this kid, he got that from the priest. You know, I think the priest really listened to him and I don't know what turmoil he was in. I didn't ask, Mm -hmm. but obviously he was going through some things and he was trying to find the answers. And he, unfortunately he was looking for the answers in the wrong places. Oh my goodness. Um, How long, how long were, were the occurrences happening? Was it a span of, a few months or a few years with this family it was a few months uh i know they had to leave the house at one point because it just got so bad to go live with i think the father's sister and to to make matters worse the father who had been sober a really long time went back to drinking oh no you know and that's you know the stories that i that i've heard if you believe in, in demons and Satan and, and evil spirits, that's how they attack. It's they get you where you're weak and they come after you that way. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, they show up at the at the door and stare you down and then you're scared and you get under the covers. It's, <laughs> right. a, it's a manipulation. It's a very subtle seduction to destroy you. Mm-hmm. And I think whatever was there was trying to destroy the family by attacking the protector of the family through his weakness, which is alcoholism. Right. What do you think it mainly was? Was it just the fact that the son was just dabbling the arts, or do you think that 
something was triggered from that point on when he made like that physical contact with Ramirez when he just locked eyes with him. I think a combination. Mm-hmm. I think a combination. I mean, you've seen pictures of Richard Ramirez, the yeah. guy. You know, he's so scary looking. It almost seems cartoonish. It almost seems like he was drawn to be a bad guy. Right. Uh, so I think I think the guy was not Richard Ramirez, but the the, the the boy I'm talking about. I think he was already dabbling in that stuff, and then when he met Richard. Uh, he, I think I think it just cemented it for him. I think it, it just it just took him to where he 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 was wanting to go, or maybe affirm what uh, what he was, you know, what he was researching. Are you still in communication with this family, or have you gotten any updates? You know, based on those strange occurrences that happen within the home. I you know I haven't talked to them in over a year. But uh, this this happened a long time ago, and they have since moved on with their lives. You know, they've had their their deaths and their family, their births. Uh, the guy got married, and you know he has his own family. But I I think it was a youthful indiscretion that mm-hmm. that you know that that just that just turned around and, and, and bit him and hurt hurt his whole family. And it feels weird saying that because it, there's no there's no proof. There's no. There's no way to, to to prove it or to codify it or anything. But yet, I'm convinced that what he did unleashed something into the house that hurt the family. Right. So it's 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 strange to say that mm-hmm. because there's no there's no way of me proving it, and there's no way of anyone proving it. But you know, it's there's just something there that if you want to tap into it, you can certainly tap into it. And it'll come out and it'll say hello to you in the worst ways. In some way, this is like a public service announcement from Tammy and Mario, guys, to not <laughs> dabble with the dark arts, with the Ouija board. If you do not know what you're doing, this is what's going to happen. It's so true. It's it's very true. But um, that was, to me, in, in my opinion, out of your entire in your book of stories, that was the scariest story. Because, like, you even wrote it down detail for detail, like, what the family went through and, you know, what this entity had done to them and, um, you know, what was the outcome of it. But I am glad to know that light will still overpower the dark and that, you know, there was salvation towards the end, that he was able to make it out okay by, you know, talking to this priest and you know, moving forward and battling whatever was there. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It, uh, you know, if you believe in evil, which I do, I believe in evil. And some people will say, you know, the dual reality of good and evil, you're just, you know, you're just, you need to read more because you don't understand. There's no such thing as good and evil. I believe there is good and evil. Mm-hmm. And I believe there is a force out there that's trying to destroy you. I really do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know you have to develop your spirituality in in whatever way you you know you don't have to be Christian you don't have to be Buddhist you you got to tap into the good that's out there too and develop that spirituality so you can get strengthened by that so that when things do come and attack which they will or things happen in life you you have that strength to to get through it and to endure it and you know bad things are going to happen. But if you if you look to the wrong things to try to deal with it, 
like alcohol or drugs or even you know satanism or <laughs> you know ouija boards it's it you know it, it can trip, make a bad situation even worse and i think that's exactly what happened with the situation in the family well maria what are your next projects or or do you have another book coming out or any other possible investigations with your cousin in the future you know right now uh because I, I run this small nonprofit that plants trees, so it keeps me pretty busy. Mm-hmm. But right now, I'm actually, I, I, I'm writing a collection of poems. Oh, wow. And uh, I spoke to a publisher about the next book I want to write, and they want me to write the next ghost book. Well, you definitely have a big, fo- a bigger following with the second one, because I know that you had a huge one with this first book that you wrote. Yeah, a couple of people bought it. Um, <laughs> No, but, uh, it seems like you have a, you know, a, a pretty, you know, decent fan base. Yeah, you know, it's nice to talk to people. Mm-hmm. I, you know, sometimes I walk down the street and, you know, where I work here in uh-huh. Whittier and people stop me and they'll say, hey, aren't you the guy in the Haunted East Alley Richard Ramirez thing? It is a really cool way to bond with people is by sharing it their is. stories. Yeah, it I find is. it really cool. Unfortunately, there's a real stigma attached to it. Yeah. You know, people people feel embarrassed. And Correct. I gotta admit, there are times when I felt embarrassed. You know, I'm in a, I'm at a meeting or something that has nothing to do with it, and someone will bring it up. And I'll say, <laughs> yeah, you know, I wrote. <laughs> well, back to the business at hand, you know. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, man, this, this, they're probably pointing at me saying, this dude thinks he believes in ghosts and all that. But oh. I've gotten over it. You know, it is what it is, and. You just got to not care, you know? You got to be yourself in your own right and say, huh, yeah, whatever, I do. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But after the stories I've heard and the people I've talked to, I really do believe that there is something there that is just unexplainable. Yes, I agree. Without a doubt. 100% agree. Well, thank you so much, Mario, for taking the time to speak with us about your book and the story of the haunted house on Hubbard Street. Thank you so much. We really Thank do you. appreciate it. And we definitely are going to contact you again later on in a few months so we can really have a sit down and go over the stories of your book because I know a lot of our listeners would really, really enjoy that. I, I'd, I'd love to do that. Thank you for uh, reaching out to me. You're very welcome. Thank you for responding back and we'll definitely speak with you very, very soon. All right. Sounds great. You have a great evening, okay? You too, Mario. Have a good one. And thank you once again. And there you have it. That is our little interview with Mario Becerra. Color me shooketh. Like, <laughs> girl. So sweet. Just, Love it. He just seems a little, really amazing. He's so nice. Just a little proof us, guys. He's not a like a professional paranormal and investigator he's not a professional he's just a writer (laughs) yeah seriously he's just a writer and his cousin's more into the field he's like i just write about it and what i love so much about it and and it's just the theme of it it's just listening and having that compassion totally and that's part of it in this field like with the paranormal when when you go into speak with a family or you're investigating and you're speaking to individuals who've had some pretty intense experiences they just need someone to listen to them. Mm-hmm. They really do. And you just need to have that open ear and that compassion. Yeah. You know? I love that. Yeah. That's it was so cool. It was really, really cool. And 
the rest of his stories in his book are pretty gnarly. They're really scary. Oh. It's not something they made up. They went out of their way to go and speak with these individuals. That's so crazy. Who had experiences in and around the neighborhood of East LA. One of the things I love that he brought up is I had a teacher in high school mm-hmm. that kind of echoed a similar sentiment. And it's always funny to me. There, everyone is on some kind of journey of faith. And I don't mean that in like a dogmatic way, but whatever you subscribe to, mm-hmm. even the belief that there is nothing, even atheism is a type of belief. And I just think that everybody has a gap. And I think the reason we call it a leap of faith is because for some people, that jump is the size of the Grand Canyon and they're never going to make it across. Mm -hmm. They're never going to be able on their own to make that distance right? for whatever that manifests itself, whether that means they don't believe or they deny or whatever. And for some people, it's just a crack in a sidewalk and they just can hop over it and they believe right away. And I think one of the things that helps us bridge those gaps is the experience of community and experience of other people and our own experiences. And so I think it's really amazing that he is like, you know, I don't know, A, the self-awareness to be able to say that. Like, yeah, there are lots of things that I just don't know the answer to. Mm -hmm. And that like open searching spirit. But then also like, but I've seen so many people and heard so many stories that like I have to believe. Like I have to acknowledge that just because I can't quantify it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And I love that. I love that too. Because I think that's very similar to the boat that I am a passenger on Mm -hmm. of like, "Mm, I don't really know a lot of things, but there's so many things that have happened, so many experiences and stories where there's just no other explanation. And so it must be something. Right. And I think when you leave yourself open to that, it, creates a more well-rounded experience for your life of like well even if you can't say definitively it is this experience or it is this paranormal like even if you can't say like it's a ghost it's a demon like whatever it may be being open to the possibility is like so important i think i love that i love that too it's really nice yeah we'll we're definitely going to work on on getting them on the podcast yes, guys they seem really cool he's really enthusiastic he's really awesome and very nice yeah. he runs a non-profit program that plants trees in low-income neighborhoods oh well that seems amazing amazing and you know and he's still able to have time to write and do all these amazing things and mario thank you for taking the time to talk with us that's so sweet he was so sweet (laughs) i would love to sit down with his cousin too victor i love to pick his brain too and just like talk to him about his experiences and investigations totally yeah but creepy so that that there you have it, guys. That's the paranormal aftermath of Richard Ramirez. And I'm sure you're thinking, well, what about the Cecil Hotel? Looking into the research of that, mm. there's no, there's a, there's a lot of inconclusive like totally. cases it, that who can say, yeah, yeah, that say that he still haunts there. A lot of people said that they've done EVPs there and they've collected some data in relation to him, but no one has really physically seen an apparition of Richard there. They right. feel something very evil, negative there. It could possibly be could something. just be he, an echo of the atrocities. Exactly. That's what I believe. But I mean, because they associate with him like staying there, they think, no, he haunts there. Not exactly. Right. I don't think Hopefully so. Hopefully not. God, I hope not. 
So, yeah, there you go, guys. This was the true crime and paranormal aftermath of Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and end this little episode by Wrap doing our up. little thing here by saying some shout outs to our spiritual base. The first one, guys, is the geek on Haunted Hill, the geek who drinks Riesling while writing about the creepiest places that will possess your sanity for price of admission. Um, Tiffany Mamano is the gal and the geek who runs Geek on Haunted Love Hill. It. We've been communicating with each other on Aye. Twitter. We're going to do a major collaboration, guys. Are you ready for it? In regards to the Chateau Marmont. Yes. yes we've been, so fancy. Yes. So she and uh, like and our podcast are going to do a big episode soon in regards to the strange happenings and hauntings in and around the Chateau Marmont. Tiffany has been in communication with Raj who um, works there Damn. and has stories to tell and we Damn. are I, I hope like they invite us to you know just to hang out in one of their amazing suites you yeah. know <laughs> but you Gold. can stand in the back outside that, that makes sense <laughs> yeah, 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 yep, yeah, yep. yeah yeah sure <laughs> And then second, we have The Golden Ghouls. It's a spooky podcast hosted by three spooky ghouls based out of Austin, Texas. They talk about ghosts and all things paranormal. Love it. Yeah, so those two are our spiritual bays of the week. Also, our oh yeah. Our very first bays of 2019. <laughs> Be sure to follow Tiffany Mamano on her website, www.thegeekonhauntedhill.com. And if you are a fan of Hollywood Paranormal and you want to give us some love, show us some love, then follow us on iTunes. Give us a shout out on our Instagram, Twitter at Hollyweird Paranormal and on Twitter at HWP Podcast. You can also follow us on Facebook. We're at Hollyweird Paranormal. If you want to just say hello, send us a quick little message. You can find us on our IG or send us a message on our Gmail, which is Paranormal at gmail.com. Word. Yes, you can also listen to our past episodes on wherever you get your podcast fix. Blueberry, CastBox, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. We are everywhere. Your grandma's little record player. Yeah, the one that you turn into. Yep, we're definitely there. We're there, guys. We're <laughs> everywhere. All right, guys. Um, Till next time, I wonder what we're going to do our next episode on. I don't know. You're just going to have to follow us, guys. Probably something really, like, nice and not scary at all. Right. Oh, Something opposite? very graphic. Opposite? Okay. Got it. Got it. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> all right, guys. Till next time. Bye. Bye.